Hello, HAT readers. Welcome to the Editor's Pick podcast for January 2024, our first podcast of a brand new year. I'm Rosalind Mannon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and I'm joined today by two very special guests. First, we'll have our editorial board fellow, Dr. Kazem Falazadeh, an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Nephrology at Emory University. And our second guest is a member of the AJT editorial board, associate editor, Dr. Michael Mengel. He also serves as chair of pathology at the University of Alberta and is chair of the Baumpf Foundation. So welcome to you both. I really appreciate you both coming to join me as our usual host, Josh Levitsky, is out on sabbatical as AST president. Let me go ahead and give the the listeners the run of the show so that they know what's coming. And again, hope that even though you might not listen to the entire podcast, you might consider taking a look at all those papers. Today's podcast is very rich in pathology. So um, for some of us where we're pathologically challenged, ha ha, we have some experts who will talk about those papers. So we'll begin the uh, podcast first with a presentation by our fellow on recurrent atypical anti-glomerular membrane nephritis in the kidney transplant by Dr. Mignano and colleagues from Mayo Clinic. The next paper, and I apologize to my ID colleagues because this is an ID topic and I'm uh, freelancing today. Uh, the first paper I'll talk about is pre-transplant COVID-19 vaccine requirements, a match case control study factors associated with uh, waitlist inactivation, a uh, waitlist activation by Anya Edwards at the UCSF. And then uh, my second paper will be incomplete tissue product tracing during the investigation of tissue-derived TB outbreak by Kristen Marshall, colleagues from the Colorado Department of Health, CDC, Department of Agriculture, and CBER. And we'll wrap the podcast up with uh, presentations by Dr. Mengel. The first will be risk of graft loss in pediatric and young adult kidney transplant recipients due to recurrent IgA nephropathy by Rachel Engen and colleagues from the University of Wisconsin. And we'll end on a very positive note, a de novo membranous glomerulopathy, uh, nephropathy in a pink to baboon kidney xeno, a new xenograft glomerulopathy, sorry for my pronunciation, by Dr. Ivy Rosales and her colleagues from MGH. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Cosm. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here and present this interesting article that's titled Recurrent Atypical Antiglomerular Basement Membrane Nephritis in the Kidney Transplant. It's by Salvatore Minano from Mac Clinic and colleagues. So atypical antiglomerular basement membrane disease is defined as linear glomerular basement membrane staining for monotypic or polytypic immunoglobulin by immunofluorescence without a diffuse crescentic pattern. So that's what differentiates it from a typical anti-glomerular basement membrane disease that's defined by diffuse crescents on biopsy and it the typical disease usually has a fulminant course resulting in rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, and if not treated, it can result in end-stage kidney disease. However, atypical anti-glomerulonephritis basement membrane disease has a more indolent course. It's slowly progressive and can result in ongoing hematuria or proteinuria, but it takes much longer for these patients to develop end-stage kidney disease. They typically 
comprise 10% of all cases of anti-GBM disease. And they can have different histological patterns, but interestingly, they don't have any circulating anti-GBM antibody. And this could be due to yet unidentified different antigen target. So the question that this article answers is, does atypical anti-GBM nephritis recur after transplant? And if it does, what injury pattern it shows on kidney pathology? So this study was done at Mac Clinic in Rochester. They looked at all their kidney transplant biopsies from 2015 to 2023. And the biopsies that showed Mumel basement membrane staining for one IgG heavy chain and at least one light chain and immunofluorescence were selected. They also looked at their patients that had atypical anti-GBM disease on native kidney biopsies and they followed them to see if they developed end-stage kidney disease and had transplant and transplant biopsy. So they included patients who had atypical anti-GBM disease on both native biopsy and post-transplant biopsy. And they excluded patients who their native disease that resulted in end-stage kidney disease was due to typical anti-GBM disease, Alport syndrome, or other disorders. So now let's discuss, let's discuss the results. They had six patients, five males and one female, that met all the criteria. The mean age was 59.7 years. And these patients had total of 18 biopsies. So interestingly, recurrence happened early in these patients. They had recurrent disease in their first kidney transplant biopsy. The mean age to the first biopsy that showed disease, which is called index biopsy, was 3.8 months and it ranged from one to seven months. Three of the index biopsies were for clinical indications, such as hematuria or elevated serum creatinine, and three of them were for protocol biopsies. Interestingly, all showed mild glomerular changes. All of them had monotypic linear glomerular immunoglobulin staining by immunofluorescence. None of these patients had detectable anti-GBM antibody or a monoclonal protein in their serum before or after transplant. And they followed these patients for two to five years post-transplant and their mean serum creatinine was 1.8 milligram per deciliter. Interestingly, one of these patients had acute cellular rejection and one of them had BK nephropathy followed by cellular rejection. And these additional pathology findings can explain why some of these patients had higher serum creatinines. The other thing that was interesting in this study was that they treated three of their patients with anti-plasma cell therapy due to concern for the pathologic findings they saw to be a manifestation of monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance, or MGRS. And one of these patients had bone marrow biopsy that showed plasma cell clone. And after treatment, that plasma cell clone 
was gone under people Marbabs. So to summarize the result, in this study, they found that in six patients who had monotypical variant of atypical GBM disease, all six of them, 100% of cases, had recurrence of disease. The recurrence course was mild, and none of the patients lost their graft due to recurrence. One limitation of this study was, as a nephrologist, I would have liked to see the GFR levels for these patients and not creatinine. Other than that, I really like the paper, and I think it's significant in terms of showing us what can happen post-transplant in patients with atypical uh, anti-glomerular basement membrane disease. It's possible that these patients have an undetectable plasma cell clone that produces monoclonal immunoglobulin, and this clone is not affected by immunosuppression post-transplant and can result in recurrence of disease post-transplant. Thank you. Great summary, uh, Cosm. It was it's a small number, so it's hard to say. But some of these patients got like daratumumab, as you point out, cyborg. Could, was there any real difference in the few cases that were treated as if they had monoclonal gammopathy versus not? Was there any relationship between the treatment or not? I didn't see a significant difference. Interestingly, one of those patients died with a functioning graph with lung cancer, okay. and. Uh, one of them initially a native kidney biopsy was diagnosed with proliferative lumen nephritis with monoclonal immunoglobulin G deposits. And that's why they treated that patient and then later realized that the initial native biopsy was atypical anti-GBM. So it's a very interesting question whether we treat these patients or not, it's going to affect their course. Well, we have one of the leading nephropathologists on this podcast. Let's call him out and get his thoughts. Thank you, Dr. Menon. As a pathologist, I had a completely different read of this manuscript, and the significance to the pathologist lies in the intriguing observation to see this entity as a recurrent phenomenon after transplantation, which allows to draw conclusions of and uh, towards the underlying pathomechanisms. So the transplant served as a model to understand the disease better. Because nephropathology categorization of glomerulonephritis is mainly based on patterns by histology, crescents or proliferation, and immunofluorescence. And the name of atypical anti-GBN GN was confusing to me as an entity to say, why do you call this anti-GBNGN when it doesn't look like anti-GBNGN? Because no crescents, no RPGN clinic. Why bother? Because you have something causing a linear staining pattern by immunofluorescence. It is the fluorescence pattern, but the paper discusses what can cause the linear pattern. We see it for IgG and diabetes, where it is a non-specific binding to different deposit um, protein components or sugars. In the true anti-GBM, we know what the antigen is. There is a direct antigen in the basement membrane, the NC1 domain and the collagen, in which causes an immediate activation of the immune system and this very, very rapidly progressive destructive disease. Totally different mechanism to obviously what is in the atypical anti-GBM GN. 
where there is, based on the data found in the recurrent transplant, a circulating monoclonal immunoglobulin, which gets deposited for some reason in the basement membrane, which we can detect by immunofluorescence, but it does not show the same pattern by electron microscopy, like a monoclonal or light chain deposition disease. So to me, this defines a new entity in pathology, so to say, which we probably have seen all pathologists before, but we didn't see deposits. We cannot detect the monoclonal disease. Or we say, oh, this is a nonspecific staining, but it probably isn't. So therefore, I found this paper very intriguing to prove that this entity exists because it came back after transplantation. It cannot be the general epitope. Uh, there is still no monoclonal immunoglobulin detectable in the patient with today's method, which we know are limited. So I thought it brought a lot of interesting insights into understanding this, this new entity. And of course, from a clinical perspective, there is a description of probably the largest cohort, which we underestimate. But now with um, more elderly folks having these latent monoclonal diseases of unknown significance, more of these patients get biopsied earlier, right? And we know that it can cause a renal failure in the long term of patients with smoldering or even very mild monoclonal gammopathies. So a new entity is emerging of different pathologies, which we just learned to understand. And therefore, I very much enjoyed reading this paper. Sorry, I was like looking at the pictures because I think the pathology, the, the reproduction of the sections looks great in the journal this time. I was really struck by the treatment. I, I thought people were treating very intensively and, um, again, you know, not having a, a ton of experience with this. I gather, I you know, the notion of having it as a monoclonal gammopathy was what was freaking everyone out and they thought to be aggressive, but um, to be continued for sure. So thanks, uh, Dr. Mengel and uh, Cosm, it's good having you on. So I'm going to transition to less lofty topics that are not pathology. Uh, I'll first talk about pre-transplant uh, COVID-19 vaccination requirement, a match case control study of factors associated with waitlist inactivation. This is uh, work by Anya Edwards and colleagues at UCSF. So I think a lot of the clinical programs are very familiar with uh, the notion of these COVID vaccine requirements and policies. There really weren't any specific guidelines by the societies or infectious disease groups. Many centers endured threats of lawsuits or had lawsuits made. It became there were some straight prohibitions uh, against requiring vaccination. It's really sad. The whole thing became a politicized issue. And I personally spent time uh, with the House counsel here kind of reviewing our policy and what it meant um, in terms of patient access. And prior studies about vaccine hesitancy in general have been linked to lower socioeconomic status, race, and less education. And so this group took it did sort of an interesting thought about looking at really why what happened, or not so much the impact of waitlist inactivation, but how this uh, policy at UCSF, which was provided to all organs, um, affected the kidney transplant waitlist inactivation and, and how did the inactivated patients differ from those that remain activated. So we won't be talking about how many organ offers were missed, but simply looking at the factors associated with why patients uh, were inactivated. And this is a retrospective case control 
cohort approach. So maybe not the strongest, but probably the best you can do in this sort of retrospective aspect, matching on age and sex and looking at factors associated with, with inactivation. The COVID policy for vaccine was established between March 2022 and they describe in detail how this was communicated to patients, how they describe in detail accessing these California Department of Public Health, California immunization registry information. Uh, they did that because they were trying to clearly document patients' uh, COVID vaccination status. So whether it was in the EMR, which we know was incomplete, many people were getting vaccinated outside our medical centers. Um, they were waiting for patients to respond and give self-reporting. They used this registry information as well. By the way, this policy was reversed in 2023, as many policies were. So this included patients from 2022 to January of 2023, uh, they relied on the EMR for extraction of their demographics. And one metric that they incorporated here is what's called the vaccine equity metric. Uh, it's sort of a measured um, a measurement of equitable vaccine distribution and takes into account uh, zip code location of a specific patient. But a, a, this is apparently a standardized measurement. Uh, Q1, quartile uh, one is the least healthy uh, individual, whereas quartile four is considered the highest uh, individual. Suffice it to say, they had nearly 200 patients inactivated uh, that were uh, matched to 744 that remain active. And really, these individuals, some could just never showed proof. And so there were a number of individuals that began to filter in and remind the staff that they had been vaccinated, um, but they were excluded. So what are the key factors associated with not being inactivated? Interestingly, Asian uh, ethnicity was the most common reason to not be inactivated compared to individuals that were primarily paid through Medicare or Medicaid. They had a higher likelihood of being inactivated, an odds ratio of about 2.6 compared to those with um, private insurance. And again, the lower quality of vaccine equity metric, the lowest quartile had something like some, a very significantly higher uh, rate of inactivation compared to those with, with the higher quartile, the higher access to vaccination. They also did multivariate analysis, which adjusted for race, ethnicity, the primary insurance, their education in this VEM quartile, and again confirmed that Asian race, ethnicity was much lower likely to be inactivated uh, compared to whites, um, and moreover, Hispanics and, and Black patients who were recipients um, were not statistically significantly different. Interestingly, they didn't have a much higher rate. I think going into the study, the authors expected they would. And again, in socioeconomic status, obviously, the VEM was strongly associated with inactivation, which is a reflection of of uh, lower socioeconomic status and economic integrity of a neighborhood, as well as the presence of Medicare and Medicaid. You know, I think, uh, you know, the impact of these patients getting inactivated isn't clear. They're, they're obviously going to present that at another time. But I think that we were all trying to do good and we were trying to enforce this policy and thought it was fair and equitable because we didn't want to see our patients die of COVID. But this study really shows that when you enact these specific policies, it does affect patients unequally. And in particular, um, those individuals that have lower SES, that are the ones we're really focused on and making sure they maintain their access, and individuals that are um, like unlikely to have private insurance, 
lower income are really the patients that probably suffer the most and the ones that we should really be hoping to try to mitigate those changes. Uh, uh, The reason that African-American recipients didn't seem to have a negative impact isn't clear. I don't know if you guys remember, but there were a lot of like NPR and and, and public media reports about um, efforts made in African-American communities to get patients vaccinated for COVID, including going down back to Tuskegee and and sort of working with um, advocacy groups to get patients uh, affected. You know, this deactivation is a proxy for patient outcomes. And so I think it would be very interesting to see, of you know, what the adverse effect this was on in terms of organ offer. Again, it was a relatively short period of time that these patients weren't activated. But again, their waiting list is, is ginormous. And so their wait times for an O may be seven to eight years. I might actually be giving them a generous number. It might be even longer. And so I think this group recognized that inactivation is not something they would take lightly. There is an accompanying editorial as well by uh, Ben Hippen that might be of interest to read as well. Ben has been pretty vocal about some of these vaccine mandates that we had in effect. Albeit, I will say that, you know, in our neighborhood, our dogs are vaccinated, our herds of cows are vaccinated. We don't give it much thought. But when it comes to getting COVID or anything else, people um, want to express their personal freedom. And so, again, understanding that psychology, but also having the access to COVID vaccination, which is Another concern that the authors noted was maybe not so much vaccine hesitancy, but the ability to get vaccinated is another key issue. I'm going to turn over to the second paper uh, that I was asked to present, and that's incomplete tissue product tracing during investigation of a tissue-derived TB outbreak by Kristen Marshall and colleagues. The CD, there's multiple agencies here, which is always bad news. So I have to say that I never really think about tissue allografts. I I always think about corneas, but uh, I oftentimes when I'm going to give donor talks, 85-year-old ladies that come to listen say, what can I give? And I said, well, we can give tissue. Of course, we can still use tissue. And and sure enough, this study um, looks at an outbreak of 118 individuals in the United States um, who received contaminated bone allograft material with mycobacteria TB. And apparently, and I never knew this, is that these these tissue allografts are not monitored in the U.S. the same way with the same rigidity that we monitor, say, infected, you know, blood and organs. I mean, those are screened religiously and and follow up is religious in terms of the recipient and reporting of those negative outcomes. But there is no apparent standardized coding or nomenclature. And one donor can provide over 100 allografts. So this occurred in May to August of 2021, primarily in uh, uh, Colorado, investigating this nationwide outbreak of of mycobacterium. You know, there was 154 units of product product distributed to 37 facilities in 20 states and implanted in 113 individuals. And uh, through this investigation, they were able to account for all the lots of product that were utilized. There was a second lot that appeared to be contaminated called lot B. This was lot A as the primary. But in retrospect, when they went back to look at was this other lot affected, the individual who recipient who received the second lot from a different donor actually had also received product from the first donor who was indeed contaminated. The methods are, you know, it's like a, you know, an FBI investigation or CSI 
bone marrow, but there's a lot of detail in here. The number of cases that were infected was really quite small, but there's um, indeed plenty of detail in the methods of how they exhaustively looked for each of these individuals. I will say that some of the most interesting findings were that uh, there was really inconsistent clinical facility reporting of whether unused product was destroyed or returned for later use. So apparently the stuff comes in packets to the operating room. Typically it sounds like neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery, rebuilding bones or fixing a spinal stenosis. And so, you know, they noted that some individuals, they'll bring multiple packets to the operating room on call and then they can return unopened packets or they can throw them away. And there's no consistent policy so certainly you might say, well, I don't know if I would mind if something is unopened and then it got used on me like a pack of sutures. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But um, again, just the fact that within one medical center, there wasn't a consistent policy is disruptive to me and, and is concerning that this could lead into a future break in contamination. They actually did an exhaustive search of the instrument sterilization and shockingly, and they didn't tell you who, they, were, they looked at the instruments from the cases that were involved, and they actually found debris on some of the claws of some of the instruments. And so they had to review decontamination processes, including the washing of these instruments, and then the thorough, even though they were sanitized by heat sterilization, there was still debris on the instruments. So, blah. So, again... This is sort of an exhaustive epidemiologic investigation of a, a pretty significant frequency of mycobacterium. And the reason it's also really tragic is these people were having reparative procedures and then got deep-seated bone infection um, requiring, you know, four agents and long-term therapy. And again, it sort of is an interesting assessment of how, you know, there's actually like regulation noted. So this advisory committee on blood and tissue safety availability or the ACBTSA. They stepped in a few years ago to regulate, you know, making sure we don't transmit hep C, B or HIV in organs and, and, you know, zero risk and all. They provided nomenclature and recommendations a while ago and really very few institutions have uh, utilized it. The VA, the Veterans Administration, interestingly, follows their recommendations in terms of recipients so do most eye banks in terms of the donor and the national bone marrow program. But there hasn't been any forced or regulatory oversight into this area. So clearly, um, this there needs to be really sort of national implementation of safety. And granted, this may not be a common procedure, but um, I think there you know has to be better uh, traceability, both in, in terms of healthcare facility accepting these products and the utilization of them. I mean, if you put a pacemaker in, there's stickers all, well, we don't have hard charts anymore, but everybody's got a card and a sticker and what lot number. And and there has to be really required adverse event reporting or maybe even follow-up reporting that patients are okay. So as a lab manager, Dr. Mengel, any thoughts about this? Because I was certainly horrified that I, I've got this paper assigned and I thought, oh, what is this going to be about? And then I read this and went, if I ever have any procedure that requires a bone graft, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. So I don't think it is about the facility processing this um, product. It's more about screening the donors. It's very hard to isolate um, mycobacteria from 
bone fragments and saw, right? Mm -hmm. And as you saw by the numbers in your introduction, these one donor is just multiplied massively and testing all products coming into comprehensive tissue banks would drive up costs massively. So there is, it's, it's, it's a, the, the revenue of the, I agree, the process is not very well regulated. Um, in Canada, we had similar incidences. And uh, now our comprehensive tissue center undergoes external accreditation, right? It's almost going to certain level of, um, processing dependent on what it is, um, standards. But I think what we need better is a donor screening, also for solid organ transplantation. But of course, for certain pathogens, it's very hard to isolate them. This is a this is a very challenging scenario. What right? when you test every bone for the one odd bone tuberculosis, who's going to pay for that program? Exactly. Right? You know, and 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 again, I think to me, really more is there are recommendations and. At the very least, there should be a suggestion by CBER or, you know, the Department of Agriculture. I mean, there were so many agencies on this paper. It's just worth a curiosity check. This doesn't really affect solid organ transplant. But if you're listening to the podcast, just go look at that paper and look at how many agencies were involved in this report because it's pretty widespread. And again, monitoring and following up all these people and the people that got infected and what their TB risk were. And your point's well taken, you know, finding MTB in the bone. I've seen it a couple of times post-transplant and it's usually a, it's a disaster because they probably had disseminated and we didn't pick it up free. But anyway, well, thanks for your insight. I'm going to turn the podcast over to you, Michael Mengel. Thank you, Dr. Manon. My first paper is risk for allograft loss in pediatric and young adult kidney transplant recipients due to recurrent IgA nephropathy. I read this paper in preparation with great interest. The study is a retrospective cohort study in patients aged 0 to 25 years using data from the SRTR databank. And um, the inclusion criteria was patients who received a transplant, a primary kidney transplant for IgA nephropathy as the original disease. And um, the control group was a patients um, as with the same age span where kidney transplantation was done due to renal dysplasia, a disease which does not recur. So an ideal control group to study the association and risk factors for recurrence of a primary disease. And the study included uh, data on outcomes, so the incidence of graft loss attributable to IgA recurrence associated with the donor type and the post-transplant corticosteroid use, which is frequently the standard treatment when you have IgA nephropathy. In total, 5,475 transplant recipients were included. Uh, 1,915 of those were with IgA nephropathy, and the control group was with 3,560 patients. In the multivariate Cox uh, proportional hazard model, IgA recurrence was associated with a higher risk of graft loss, which we know with recurrent disease is, compared to the group where no disease, primary disease could recur. The graft loss was attributed to recurrent disease in 5.4% uh, of the included patients. So relatively rare recurrence overall. 95% of the patients with IgA does not recur. 
In a multivariate competing risk analysis, patient with IgA receiving, and this is the most interesting finding, so I try to be very, very precise about that. So patient with IgA receiving a parental living, so living-related donor kidney were more likely to report graft loss from recurrent disease compared to patients with a non-parental, so unrelated living donor. Of course, and this is where it gets even more interested, a living donor usually has a better outcome than a deceased donor. But in this constellation, a living-related donor was the inferior choice overall. And usually our younger patients often get uh, living donors, as we know. So in reviewing the literature as the background uh, for this study, the authors identified that the published literature about recurrence of IgA is fairly heterogeneous. And um, I would speculate that this is due to the fact that we more and more realize that IgA is actually a very heterogeneous disease. Coming back to our first paper today, where pathologists categorize GN by pattern of immunofluorescence and light microscopy, this, I think, IgA was the very first described immunofluorescence category of disease, uh, Berger disease. And uh, that's why we lumped them all together. Everything which has mesangial IgA is IgA nephropathy, but probably a lot of different mechanisms can cause mesangial IgA deposits. And this study again shows that likely those patients where the parents are carriers for genetic predisposition for IgA deposition, namely, and let me read this out to you. Families with galactose deficient IgA1 and transglutaminase 2 and transferrin receptor 2 mesangial proteins are more prone to recurrence. And what this shows that in the donor allocation, what the authors advocate for as their main conclusion of the findings is to take into consideration the genetic predisposition for a recurrent disease when you do a living-related donation scenario. And we were probably mostly driven by finding a living donor and somebody who is willing. And here is another argument for a paired exchange program, which is non-HLA-based, but rather other genetic constellations-based. And I found that very, very interesting where we're... First, of course, from the diagnostic perspective, to increase our precision of subcategories from IgA and making accurate risk stratification then in a recipient with a GN of what the recurrent risk is depending on the subtype of the entity. Membranes could have the same argument. We just saw it with anti-GBN deposition with IgA. So, so further ratifying the primary disease and informing living donation based on the subcategory of your primary disease showed a survival benefit in this relatively large cohort. Great summation. Um, Kosim, were you going to say something? I didn't want to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I was curious if you think these uh, parents that have a genetic mutation are going to be high-risk living donors because you mentioned live, uh, paired exchange, but I'm thinking now if they donate one of their kidneys would be a higher risk of developing problems in the future. And I was thinking the exact same thing 
And I've never really thought about it. I mean, I, I think the number of IG, well, I, we saw UAB in particular, we were an IGA center. So we saw a ton of IGA. And I would say that we did have living donors that were familiarly related, but I never thought about it. Like this paper makes me think about it quite a bit now. The other thing that I thought was interesting was the finding that steroids didn't make a difference. You know, mm-hmm. that's always the dictum. Oh, make sure they're on steroids. I mean, I could hear Dr. Julian in my head saying, oh, don't do steroid free with this guy. You're asking for trouble. So, um, but they did not find that association in this paper. And uh, and again, why that exactly is, isn't clear. I mean, maybe the other studies are just, you know, it's it's an affectation of the therapy. And here they actually had sufficient numbers that were steroid free because we didn't really implement steroid free in kids until probably the late 2000, like 2008 or nine, when people felt comfortable, you know, doing like hyper daclizumab, which we don't have anymore, or giving multiple doses of basiliximab if they wanted to avoid depletion. Well, you know, we're going to run out of time, Michael. So let's talk about Xeno. Every podcast should have something about Xeno, don't you think? Well, maybe it will have in the future. Of course, there's no other transplants done anymore. But um, so this paper, which is essentially a case report from the group at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which has access to probably one of the largest um, pick-to-baboon xenograft programs uh, in the world, and therefore allows us to, to learn about uh, the pathology in those xenografts, um, which is still low number overall. Here, the authors dis- describe a case of a de novo membranous glomerulonephritis post-transplantation in a, uh, a pig kidney from a transgenically modified pig transplanted into a primate. And uh, interesting is that um, the natural course of this transplant was the development first of antibody-mediated rejection which still is a main feature in the setting. And on an, the recipient developed proteinuria at day 42, which progressively went to nephrotic range uh, proteinuria or nephrotic syndrome at day 106 post-transplantation and an increase in serum anti-donor IgA. However, in, early, in the early biopsies, the um, uh, graft showed the pathology of antibody-mediated rejection with diffuse C4D positivity and thrombotic microangiopathy and later onset of transplant chromalopathy, which then triggered uh, electron microscopy. But surprisingly, the staining pattern of C4D became a granular typical for membranous nephropathy in the glomeruli while still being positive in peritubular capillaries. An electron microscopy showed this typical pattern of membranous glomerulopathy with evenly spaced subepithelial deposits and spike formation. So there is no doubt that this uh, kidney developed membranous nephropathy. The question is, what is the epitope? And um, as many of you follow, it is membranous glomerulopathy or nephropathy recently has a major renaissance with more and more epitopes detected and identified using mass spectrometry from the glomeruli where you can break down the peptides predominant in these deposits. And uh, here is the long story short, the, the antigen is not identified in this case report, but it opens up the question whether doing xenotransplants 
imposes novel antigens to the host, which can trigger membrane escomeropathy as a side effect of doing xenotransplants. And what has been shown before in humans is that when you have severe antibody-mediated rejection and you injure the basement membrane and the podocytes with the antibody against the endothelial-expressed HLA, you can free up through the injury novel cryptic antigens, which might be a novel target for circulating immunoglobulins. And that can cause immune complex formation in situ, right? And we have seen this also with drugs, triggering membranous glomeropathy, okay. right, in the circulation. So there is a fraction of membranous which picks up neoantigens causing membranous glomeropathy. So therefore, this um, case reports is is the first one of its kind, will hopefully create awareness for all the xenotransplants, which will last longer because still the human xenotransplant didn't last as long as the baboon situation. Mm -hmm. right? So they are chronic ABMR, so to say, and we still want to come to that stage of months post-transplant, whether we will have to deal with neoantigens in this setting. Is it either the injury or is it the xeno setting? which could trigger uh, immune responses to unknown non-HLA uh, or HLA-like antigens with not only rejection, but also immune complex responses. So I, I found this case report very, very thought-provoking and speculating of what might or might not happen if xenotransplants function enough in humans, long enough in humans, to develop other pathologies than very severe early rejection, what we see currently. So, and just as you continue to speculate, because I thought this was a pretty provocative paper, did you think there was any relationship to the preceding ABMR episode? Do you think that had anything to do with it? Is that what's, you know, making all the podocytes start crying and they're, you know, exposing themselves to, you know, the non-human primate <laughs> serum? I mean, I'm just trying to think about you know, can, if we obviate, here you go, if we could speculate and obviate ABMR entirety, maybe we wouldn't see this, but um, that might be just too much of speculation, Michael. I just didn't know if you thought. So the authors favored that hypothesis. Okay. Right? I did not. I felt this, the Xeno component was potentially more likely to Play that in and of itself was enough in to itself. trigger this. Yeah. 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 So because we haven't seen Xenos, and, and that's why the authors were asked to provide historical data from their database of how often have they seen membranous. But all these transplants are, it's still a small number, and mm -hmm. uh, they are not very long out. So, but, but, but I think both hypotheses are, are equally worth pursuing. Well, I'm Cosm. Yep, Cosm. I have a Sorry. question. Do do we know if pigs develop membranous nephropathy like naturally? Ah, uh, good question. Um, I know that pigs develop IgA nephropathy uh, almost all the time. Right when they live long enough, they have mesenteroproliferative GN. It's a very common disease in pigs. I don't know why it have, but um. I haven't read about membranous GN in pigs or ever seen it in the models I was involved in. Yeah. Interesting question. Well, this has been a terrific podcast. I want to thank you both for joining me today. And we might have to have you special guests back 
because it's certainly um, the pick papers were great, but also uh, the discussion and the insights for the readers. So I just want to thank you both for taking time to record this with me and hope their readers enjoy this version. And again, please go ahead and download all the papers. Thank you so much. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.